Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Majestic Jesus. A study in the godness of Jesus Christ. Now, I could have said the deity of Jesus Christ, but I'm trying to get something that actually makes sense to you. Divinity, deity, godness. The fact that Jesus is, in fact, God. It's no small matter, and it has actually been one of the greatest debate points and challenge points throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ. And it is not one that I take lightly, and it's not one that I think you should take lightly. Because how we approach Jesus and how we uh, deem Jesus, is he just a man that was good and moral and taught wise things and God says that is a special man? Or is he God in the flesh? God come to this earth to demonstrate to us the way God is, the full manifestation of the Father in human skin. Who is this Jesus? And so this is a message on that exact concept. It's a three-part series. Session one, the hill to die on, understanding the battle over the person of Jesus Christ. At Ellerslie, we have quite a mix of denominational persuasions and biases. If you are conservative in your bents and you believe the word of God is in fact the word of God and Jesus Christ is in fact God Almighty in the flesh, you fit in really well around here. If you don't like those ideas, then this is an awkward place to hang out. However, in the gathering of believers here, we have quite a unique difference between us. And we have every probably conservative background represented in this room even right now. And yet there is something to stand on and there's something that I do not want to divide on too. There's other things that I would say would be considered peripherals that though you can hold to them as dear, I would also encourage you not to divide uh, over them and to recognize that Truly what sets apart the body of Christ is not necessarily the small things that may oftentimes be trigger points for denominational breakdowns. So the hill to die on. If you've been looking for a hill to die on, I'd like to introduce you to one. The determination of the early church. And so I'm going to go back all the way to the beginnings of church history. And we are going to begin to recognize that there was a message in the early church and it was very Specific, and it was very pronounced, of what was preached. Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The central core message of the church has always been about a man and that man's work. But that man is very important to recognize. He was not just merely a man. He was God. And that work that he did was not just the work of a man. It was the work of God. And it is very significant, and that is the center point of all the Bible. All the Old Testament leads to it. It's a foreshadow, it's a preparation, or it's a schoolmaster, which leads us to understand our need for it. And then everything that flows out in the New Testament comes out of that high holy hill known as Calvary. 
And everything that flows out from resurrection life to the impartation of the Spirit of God to all of church history flows out of what was gained at that tree. Preach Christ and Him crucified. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now, if I took out Jesus Christ there, and I could put in a lot of other things that people teach and preach about today, and it does not mean that because you're teaching about soteriology or eschatology, you're teaching about any other aspect of the Christian life, which is clearly enunciated in Scripture, that it's wrong. It's just that everything you teach and everything you preach should bring us back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the starting point and this is the finish point because Jesus Christ is the great work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is laboring in the body to reveal the person of Jesus Christ, to magnify the person of Jesus Christ. And when we see Jesus Christ, we see the clear portrayal of the Father. And so the way that we truly understand the Godhead is to heed the Holy Spirit, to see and behold Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we see the manifest presence of the Father. So the full revelation of God is found in teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. This is the center point of all Christianity. Spurgeon's first sermon in the tabernacle, March 25th, 1861, when he was 27 years old, he takes over in one of the biggest uh, theaters for Christian communications this world has ever known, and this was his first sermon. It's quite profound in light of what we're talking about, because all throughout Christian history, there has been a message. There has been a message that changes the world. It changes individual lives. And for whatever reason, we can very easily detour off the center point of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a strange, weird thing that pulls us elsewhere, and yet this has always been the magnetic center, the North Star. So here's Charles Spurgeon. Now, I shrunk this down a bit. It appears that the one subject upon which men preached in the apostolic age was Jesus Christ. The tendency of man, if left alone, is continually to go further and further from God. And the church of God itself is no exception to the general rule. For the first few years during and after the apostolic era, Christ Jesus was preached. But gradually, the church departed from the central point and began rather to preach ceremonials and church offices than the person of their Lord. So it has been in these modern times. We also have fallen into the same error at least to a degree, and have gone from preaching Christ to preaching doctrines about Christ, inferences which may be drawn from his life or definitions which may be gathered from his discourses. In the days of Paul, it was not difficult at once in one word to give the sum and substance of the current theology. It was Christ Jesus. Had you asked any one of those disciples what he believed, he would have replied, I believe Christ. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. If I am asked to say, what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. What a way to start a ministry. And he is oftentimes referred to as the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon had a big impact on my life and still does. And this is one of the reasons. Every sermon I ever hear of from Charles Spurgeon, whether I agree with all his nuance of doctrinal persuasion, all of his messages point to one singular thing, and that is the cross and the man that hung upon it. 
Jesus Christ. Paul says in the book to the Corinthians in the second edition, For I am zealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity, which means the singularity of focus that is in Christ. There is meant to be a singularity of focus in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we preach. This is what we teach. This is what we live. Our life is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. What do you believe? I believe Jesus Christ. I believe that he is the answer. He is the solution. His work is sufficient for me. That is where we pin our hopes. That is where we pin our confidence. It's called faith. Faith in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. That is the focal point of the entire text of Scripture. That is what Jesus came to be, the answer, the way, the truth, and the life. So Paul is concerned, lest by any means is a serpent beguiled Eve, that so our minds should be corrupted from something very specific, and that's the singularity of focus, the simplicity that is found in Christ Jesus. Looking for something, the ache for purpose. We have a desire to make this life meaningful, to be on this earth in such a way and to live in such a way that our life counts, that when we exit this life, we can look back on it and say, you know what, it was a life well lived. It's an ache. I don't know if everyone deals with it. I know I deal with it. And here's a great quote that I received. I don't remember who told it to me, but it, it stuck with me. If by the age of 30 you don't have anything worth dying for, then you don't have anything worth living for. Now, that might be sort of a sad commentary for anyone who's 31 and doesn't have anything worth dying for. However, I heard this when I was in my young 20s. And I remember thinking, do I have something in my life worth dying for? I knew about Jesus, but was I willing to die for Jesus? Was I willing to die for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Eh. Well, I can tell you now, my answer is a hearty yes. The things that I'm going to preach about today are the center point of my life and my passion. They are things that I will divide over. And I don't say that very quickly. If you know Eric... I'm always, I seem, I could be accused of being ecumenical in one breath because it's like, hey, he's not taking a strong stand on soteriology. Yeah, but on the other breath, there are certain things I would gladly divide over. Happily! Oh no! We are not messing with that. And it all comes down to Jesus Christ. You don't mess with Jesus Christ. You see, when you mess with the Word of God, a few weeks ago we, we dealt with the Word of God in text. And when you have confidence in the word of God in text, it lends confidence to the word of God in person, known as Jesus Christ. And you see, the word of God in text, and the reason men and women throughout the ages have died to protect jots and tittles in it, is because it is the lone treasure map which leads to the treasure. The treasure is Jesus Christ. So if you want to get into a wrangle with Eric Ludi, you start messing with the text of Scripture and the one it all points to, Jesus Christ. The hill to die on. If you're looking for a hill to die on, I highly recommend you check out the hill of Calvary, where you will find the singular man and the singular work that made all things new. By the way, I capitalized man. Arius, the priest of the church at Bacallus. So we're going back to 320 AD, and I'm not a fan of Arius. Okay? Arius uh, led to many problems within church, the church history, and at the time it was an absolute catastrophe 
But this man's influence in the church at the time was massive, uh, to the point where it was almost an entire breakdown of what had always been the most basic of doctrinal persuasions, and that is the deity or the divinity or the godness of Jesus Christ. This man came in with a new proposal. So the lie of Arius is what I will call it. And very simply put, it's the diminishment of the person of Jesus Christ. When the serpent speaks to Eve, remember what Paul was concerned about? That we would be beguiled just as Eve was beguiled. Well, how was Eve beguiled? The word of God was diminished. Did God really say? Are you sure about that? It brought question. And it actually cast a slur on God's character. God's not telling you everything. Are you sure you can trust that? It is a diminishment of the word of God in text. When you diminish the word of God in text, you're diminishing the one it speaks of, which is the word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. And so what is Arius doing? He's doing the same thing the serpent did back in the beginning. Are you sure that is from God? Are you sure Jesus is Very God of very God. Are you sure? And he cast a doubt, and it began to sweep through Christianity as we know it, just as the emergent movement has swept through Christianity in our day. Here's the lie. Jesus is a created being, not a co-equal with God, but merely an adopted son. Now, for those of you that have grown up with good old-fashioned orthodoxy, you look at that and go, what? Well, that's right, you should. However, back in the day, before... We could say orthodoxy was officially cataloged. This was a huge issue. And there was a man I want to introduce you to named Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria. So remember, this was all happening in Alexandria, Egypt. And Athanasius was exiled five times. This man would not budge on a singular issue. It was the hill to die on. And that was the godness of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that the church believes what it believes, even to this day, is because of a man named Athanasius who refused to budge on this point. Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius basically was a lone man standing in his day. At least that's the way he felt. Whether or not anyone else was standing with Athanasius. Athanasius was a powerful character, but he was a very controversial character because he was standing against the modern flow of thought. But it was a diminishment of Jesus Christ, and he refused to back down. And so as the classic story says, Athanasius, will you not recant? The world is against you. And Athanasius' famous reply is, if the world is against me, then Athanasius is against the world. On a singular point of the deity of Jesus Christ. So the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., so they came to a conclusion which is typically understood as the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed is oftentimes looked at as the most basic enunciation of historic Christian belief. So let's look at what it says. Now I'm building something. I'm building a case for what we could call the divinity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is what it says about Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God. Why are they saying that? It's because this is a contrast to the Arian heresy that was raging at the time. They are literally clarifying the person of Jesus Christ very specifically in this exact era to make it clear. He is God of God. He is light of light. He is very God of very God. 
He's begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and and who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into, the, into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the, Lord, in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and by the way, that Catholic is meaning universal. It is, that is what the Catholic word means. And this is back in 325 AD. Every church was the Catholic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. There was a footnote made to the Nicene Creed, and you'll understand why it was added. But those who say there was a time when he, Jesus, was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. See, why are they going out of their way to make such a stink over something that you just take for granted? Well, it hasn't been taken for granted throughout the ages. This is the point that is always under attack. And by the way, it's under attack today in our age and generation. If you hang out at Ellerslie, you don't oftentimes hear anything contrary. Jesus is, in fact, God. And we don't mince words on that point. He just is. And so that's what my message is, just in case you're wondering. It's like, wait a minute, if it's been debated, well, then how in the world can you support that claim? Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time and give you understanding of why Athanasius stood contra mundum, against the world. Preserving the godness of Jesus Christ. For as God, and only as God, can he save, atone, forgive, clean, justify, redeem, and sanctify. This is a work of God. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can truly atone. Only God can cleanse and wash. Only God can make clean that which is unclean. And so when you undeify, remove the godness from Jesus Christ, you're removing the great work of God in salvation. It is not a small thing, and might seem subtle to you, but it is not a small thing. First things first, preserving the godness of Jesus hinges on preserving the godness of the Bible. The Bible is actually built, manufactured, compiled by God. And that's what I built an entire message on, what was it, two weeks ago? The reliability of Scripture is of the essence for those of us that are Christians, that we would understand that it is, in fact, God that wrote it. God moving men, inspiring men to enunciate in and through text the word of the Creator. And so when you diminish the word of God in text, you, it follows that you diminish the word of God in person. If I had a treasure map and I set it in front of you and you looked at it, like, whoa, you have to go through that low bog in through the mud and the slime, and you have to climb a high mountain? Boy, that would be hard. And you could take your little scissors and clip it off. You could still have the X that marks a spot, but now you've lost part of the journey. Guess what? You're not going to get to the treasure. You see, you don't mess with the map. The map is the lone thing on this earth, the revelation of God that's been given us so that we would find the truth, the treasure, who is Jesus Christ. So, first things first, preserving the godness of Jesus hinges on preserving the godness of the Bible. 
The godness of the Bible. Now, I may be coming to a, what might sound like a hasty conclusion. However, I had three messages on it a couple weeks ago. And so we're going to need to go back if, if you're new to this discussion, and you can listen to these messages. But the Bible is, in fact, God's word. It's a key point of all discipleship. At Ellerslie, we start with this as a premise. Do you believe that God's word is, in fact, God's word? And you know, the, If you don't believe it, guess what? Then everything's mushy in the text of Scripture. It's like, well, I'm not sure that that is God's word. I mean, maybe this is, but I don't know about that. Well, now you don't have anything firm to stand on. It's called sand. Sand is a whole bunch of crushed up rock. What you need is something solid, something that will not budge. When winds and rains blow and beat against your house, you need to know where you stand. What is your position on the word of God? So I'm going to make a statement here. The Bible is, in fact, God's word. The godness of Jesus Christ. If the Bible is, in fact, God's word, then Jesus is, in fact, God's word made flesh. Why would I say that? Well, because that's what the Bible says. So if you believe the Bible, then you will follow its conclusions. And the Bible itself declares, you see this text? You see this revelation? You see this utterance of God? Jesus is that in the flesh. He is that on two feet. He is that with two hands. He is that with two eyes. He is that living and breathing on planet Earth. He fleshed out. He animates the scriptures so that you can understand it and see the full revelation of the Father. So here we are in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Who's it speaking of? Jesus. Anyone who reads the context of this knows who it's talking about. And without him, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, who are we talking about here? And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. And he was before me. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So we're going to build on something known as if-then. Uh, some people call it logic. It's a perfectly fine uh, way of describing it. Uh, some people shy away from logic, especially in a postmodern era where logic is, uh, that's not allowed. Uh, there's no absolutes in a postmodern world. And yet, I can't help it. God is logical. In fact, the very word for word is the root for the idea of logic. Isn't that amazing? It's a logos. That's the Greek word for word. So in the beginning was the word. In in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was logic. If you want to look at it that way, a word, a speech, or reason, a ground, a plea, an opinion, or an expectation. It's more than a human word. It's a divine word. It's more than human speech. It's God revelation. It's more than earthly reason. It's the logical syllogism of the creator. Uh, Don't worry about what that means if you don't know what a syllogism is. It's more than a ground. It's a rock foundation. It's more than a plea. It's a divine command. It's more than an opinion. It's a heavenly reality. It's more than an expectation. It's solid hope. It's more than a Greek word. It's very God of very God. The word of God has taken on skin, has become human. It's an amazing thought. 
that God Almighty, as revealed in and through text, his nature perfectly articulated, and then, in the fullness of time, God himself becomes a baby and actually animates the text of Scripture and walks it out in the land of Judea. Logic. Reasoning is if the logos is both true and divine. You want to have good logic? You better believe the Bible. If you stop believing truth, well, your logic's going to stink. And so the basis of good logic is, ironically, the logos, the word, the Bible. And so reason is if the logos is both true and divine. If you reason as if God is in fact true, that his word is in fact true, and that it cannot lie, then suddenly your logic actually works. Now, for those of you that may not think so highly of the word of God, you could say, oh, that's ridiculous. But hey, this is how logic would work. It is based on an actuality, a foundation, a rock. And when winds and rains beat against it, it won't fall. It'll stand solid every time. So the logos, the if-then logic of heaven. So I'm going to go through, now for those of you that are intimidated by the word logic in and of itself, this will be short and rather painless. But I'm going to go through the if-then logic of heaven. If this is true, then this is true. If the Bible is in fact God's word, then Jesus is in fact God's word made flesh. You see, if the book of John is part of the canon, if it is inspired by God, if we do come to that conclusion, then we also come to the conclusion that Jesus is in fact that word made flesh. If the Bible is in fact God's word, then what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, is true. Well, what does it say about Jesus Christ in John chapter 1? If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, in John chapter 1 is true, then Jesus is not just a man born 2,000 years ago, but in fact, he is from before creation. Because what does it say? It says, in the beginning was the word. Well, that's a little before 2,000 years prior. The same was in the beginning with God, it says. John the Baptist then states, for he, speaking of Jesus, was before me. If you study the chronology of the New Testament, you'll know that John the Baptist was born first. And yet John goes out of his way and says, no, he was before me. You see, that's only in agreement with the rest of the book of John in chapter 1. If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 is true, then... Jesus is, in fact, God. What does it say? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Emphasis, mine. It's a, you have to appreciate that emphasis, though. A big W-A-S in there feels good, doesn't it? If what God's Word says about God's Word made flesh, Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 is true, then Jesus is, in fact, the creator of the heavens and the earth. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, if you believe the Bible to be true, then you believe what it says to be true. It's an if, then. If you don't believe the Bible to be true, well, then you have nothing to stand on. Who's Jesus to you? Make him up for yourself. I'm telling you what God himself has declared Jesus to be. So either you believe the Bible to be true or you don't. If you believe the Bible to be true, then you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is in fact God, the creator. Huh? Uh-huh. 
That's right. But I have a lot more. There's three messages that I'm packaging together on the same theme. How in the world could Eric go beyond John chapter 1? If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, in John chapter 1 is true, then Jesus is, in fact, the revelation of the Father. We know the Father by beholding Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, revealed him, shown him. The Apostle John presents the logic of heaven. So here's the logic of heaven. Jesus is preexistent. He was before. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. See, these are basics. I'm not giving you some newfangled idea. These are the basics laid out in the first few verses of John chapter 1. Yet you have to believe the word of God is true to agree with John chapter 1. Therefore, you see, this is John's logic in John chapter 1. What does he lay out? He lays out those four key things, and then what does he say? Therefore, he is fit to be the lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world. Who's crying in the wilderness immediately after John lays his foundation? Behold! Behold the lamb! You see, this is immediately following John's argument. Do you realize who he is? He is able to take away the sin of the world. He is, in fact, the creator God come and dwelt among us. This is John's logic to start out his gospel. Why is John writing this? John's gospel was written many years after the other three. Why is he writing this? Because this is the key argument that it keeps coming against the truth of Jesus Christ. Hey, people, says John, let me tell you who he was. And he does. That's a big part of my messages today. The next day, John saw Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Uh huh. That's the witness. That's John the Baptist coming and saying, oh, 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 whoa, this is the Son of God. This is the hill we will die on. Do not let Jesus be messed with. If you're looking for some reason to live, if you're looking for some purpose in your life, something worth dying for, I'm dishing it out to you today. The person of Jesus Christ who he is, what he has accomplished is no small thing to you. In the days of Paul, it was not difficult at once. This is Charles Spurgeon speaking. In one word, to give the sum and substance of the current theology, it was Christ Jesus. Had you asked any one of those disciples what he believed, he would have replied, I believe Christ. If I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. So what we're starting with is a very basic thing. I I know talking about things like logic can get a little um, big sounding and difficult to comprehend. I want this to be as simple as possible where even a child could understand it. I do not want any of you to trip over this. The Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, and when the Bible speaks, you can trust it. 
And when the Bible speaks about Jesus, it doesn't stutter. It says, yeah, he, he was preexistent. Yeah, yeah, he, he is God. Uh, yeah, he created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, he is able to save. He has come in human skin, and he lived a sinless life. And he has stood as our high priest in an intercessory position on our behalf. And when we turn to him, his righteousness and his perfect life is bequeathed to us. And we are clothed in his work upon that tree. It is my faith in that man, capital M, and in his work on that tree that gives us life. And you will find no other access to the Father. That's Bible 101. And so even though we're going to the basics, it's important sometimes to establish the basics as firmly as we can so that you know the person of Jesus Christ and you are not pushed around in a society in which truth has become jello-like, even within the church. It's high time we establish some rock beneath our feet. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.